0: And extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
2: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find a gobsmack.
1: I will call it a personal nightmare Tell the Prime Minister to go and get
2: This is changing all around the world I accept your nominee The authority is total And I rejected that approach It's all about acknowledging how far we've come He's all tipping no iceberg
1: Like a really scary wooden puppet He was drunk That's not true Not now, not ever
2: You're a classic space
1: invader A social climbing sycophant You should
2: be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair
0: shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Nice of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and thanks for joining us on this episode of Democracy Sausage, which emanates from the studio of the highly regarded Crawford School of Public Policy. Australia continues to impress with our handling of the pandemic threat, with no new COVID deaths for months, high levels of public confidence and social cohesion, and an economy that is showing a surprising resilience. Chief Medical Officer Paul Kelly told National Cabinet last week that the numbers in other countries demonstrate this, noting that while we haven't had any fatalities since Victoria got on top of its second wave, and currently there are no serious hospital cases in Australia, America had a million new infections and 20,000 deaths in just one week recently. You remember that argument early on about whether the downturn was an economic crisis or a health crisis? It was a pretty useless sort of argument, really, but it betrayed certain biases. Those insisting it was purely a health crisis wanted to limit the scale of fiscal support required. Those arguing it was an economic crisis wanted more support. Ultimately, the latter won the day, with vast expenditure ploughed into wage subsidies and unemployment benefits and a range of other assistances. But a more useful understanding emerged also, which was that you couldn't separate the two hemispheres. In order to limit the economic damage, you had to get to the health threat and get that under control. That's been Australia's great achievement so far, and it goes a long way to explaining why even through 2020, retail sales actually grew and official joblessness never reached the double-digit heights feared. In short, the most aggressive health response was the best medium-term economic response, even though it might involve almost complete cessation of exchange in some sectors. Countries that tried to muddle through keeping commerce going, borders open and restaurants trading through the outbreak, have generally fared terribly. And remember why they did, because powerful voices, usually right-wing voices, insisted that the economy had to be kept open to protect jobs. Like so many other issues these days, the coronavirus problem was shoehorned quickly into the left-right matrix so beloved of partisan media and our hyperpartisan politics. The right reframed the public health response as a new front in the war, depicting mask-wearing and compliance with public health advice as a burgeoning state and an assault on individual liberty. The left saw compliance on a high moral plane and righteously demanded ever more public expenditure on income assurance and instant extended lockdowns. But mostly this argument occurred at the margins of the community. Ordinary people, and their governments thankfully, largely got on with practical problem solving, which was actually quite a nice change. Now, I mentioned the Crawford School of Public Policy, and I'm delighted to say it has provided 100% of the top-notch panel I've assembled today. Professor Helen Sullivan is Director of the Crawford School, no less. She's a political scientist, current President of the Australian Political Studies Association, and a regular on Democracy Sausage, whenever I can get her. That is, Helen, welcome back.
1: Thanks so much, Mark.
0: And Professor Warwick McKibben is Director of the ANU Centre for Applied Macroeconomic Analysis in the Crawford School also. He is one of Australia's most respected public economists, and he's also a former board member of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Warwick, welcome to the hot plate. Great to be here, Mark. Now, Helen, Australia has done rather well so far with, as I said, strong social cohesion, effective public policy, generally speaking. I mean, we we all know about the mistakes, but we also know where we are relative to other countries. Our health results at the moment are good. Of course, you know, one of the things we've learned through all of this is that you never want to get Hubristic. You never want to sort of start thinking, you know, mission accomplished. Things can always turn south. They have, for us, um, luckily we've survived that with the, you know, sec, sec, uh, second um, lockdown in Victoria, for example. But um, we've seen plenty of other countries that thought they were sailing along okay and then plunged back into crisis what primarily do you put down to australia's success
1: well it's a very good question and i think um i think the answer is pretty simple um uh, one is that uh, there was uh, and still is uh, effective political leadership um at all levels um you know whatever side of the uh the party divide you're on um you can find somebody in a position of leadership who is doing the right thing um and certainly um the way in which uh for example the national cabinet although that is now uh becoming much more uh, riven by the politics that you would imagine would happen in the end um, was certainly something that I think gave ordinary citizens a sense that um, you know uh, politicians, leaders were actually thinking about the country rather than themselves. So that was the the first thing. But I think absolutely um, as important um, is that we have an incredibly good system of public services in Australia. Um, the bureaucracy is regarded as one of the uh, the best in the world and again while it is not without its difficulties um, one of the things that was immediately evident and continues to be evident is that there is a level of capacity within the public service system whether it's at the commonwealth or at the state level and indeed at local government level. Um, that means that uh, people knew how to respond, they understood what it was to be dealing with a crisis and by and large with some you know uh, notable exceptions, um, they have managed to keep th- put things in place and keep them in place in a way that um, other countries, um, for example, the UK has a very, very good bureaucracy, but dreadful political leadership. And so there you see um, the way in which those two things, if you don't have them together, they don't have to be perfect, but they do have to be functional and they do have to be consistent. And,
0: and uh, the third thing, the third leg of that stool, is 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 arguably the public trust that derives from those two things, which is to say that there was a there's a you know people have talked about Australians being obedient, which I've always bristled at a bit. I don't think it's obedience when the you know the fire service tells you to evacuate an area as the fire front apo- approaches. I don't think it's obedience. I think it's um, it's coordination and it's an understanding that a clear and present danger is is there and uh, and its compliance yes but it's a slightly different thing from obedience and i i think australia has had relatively high levels of compliance with public health orders and with the general messaging coming out of our governments um because it makes sense because it was based on expert health advice there's there's as you say there's respect for the public servants the administrators, the uh, the, uh, the specialists, medical specialists, uh, epidemiologists, public health officers, hospitals, uh, frontline emergency services, all of those things pulling in the same direction. In some ways, I think that's the other great thing about the um, the National Cabinet is that it's essentially, and this has been a bit missed by people, I think, when they've criticised it or, or, or downplayed it, is that it's a sort of a single agenda instrument at the moment. I mean, I know that the PM wants to replace, has decided to basically keep it rather than, uh, and have it replace COAG, the Council of Australian Governments, which is, you know, horribly bureaucratic and sluggish and so forth, and mired in a lot of, you know, sort of jurisdictional arguments. But really, the National Cabinet's been great because it's brought all of those strands together, the expertise, the public service, the political will and all that, and it's done so without having a focus on other things.
1: Yeah, well, that's right. Um, I think the thing not to forget though, Mark, is that we, it is about a crisis and it is, it is possible in a crisis and indeed desirable in a crisis that you, you do have the capability to come together and think about one thing. Hmm. Um, and, um, there was, aside from the, the debates that you, you talked about, but there was pretty much a strong, uh, conformity of view about what needed to be done and how it needed to be done. Um, and that, I think, sustained the National Cabinet. Now, it is different, of course, moving from crisis into whatever it is that's going to pass for normal. Um, and that is when we will see inevitably and importantly, um, politics come back into, um, discussions within the national mm-hmm. cabinet. And indeed, I think that will indicate whether the national cabinet can survive or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, the interesting question is what has Australia learned from this? experience that it, it it could and should take into some of the really, really problematic policy challenges that it has just been shying away from for years. Climate change is one, um, but there's a there's a heap of others. Um, older age care is another, which mm. has you know come to the fore in the most awful way through yeah, COVID. Yeah. Um, but I think the worst thing and, and the other one I think I absolutely have to mention is is inequality, because you're right to talk about social cohesion but that social cohesion um is is actually quite fragile um and the the degree to which that social cohesion can be sustained in a society that is becoming more unequal um and where you see uh, the extremes now of uh, both the, the far right and, and and as well um the left where you are Uh, identifying um, disruptions to how we understand normal politics uh, that, you know, it's not aided by some parts of the media. Mm. Um, I think all of those things make up for a potentially toxic cocktail. Um, And Australia, I think, has the opportunity to really get to grips with some of those things. But that requires uh, the kind of political leadership from all of the leaders, but particularly the prime minister that I'm not sure is... Um, is evident. Um, The Prime Minister is is excellent at um, tactics, is excellent at positioning, is excellent at um, communicating with key groups. Does the Prime Minister have a strategy for the long term? Is the the Prime Minister going to be able to, if he has such a strategy, to convince enough people to to go along with him? I think those are really important political questions that um, are going to really test The extent to which Australia can move from a country that is great at dealing with an immediate crisis, but possibly not so good at dealing with a crisis that we've all known has been coming for a long time, the climate crisis, and we've yet to do anything significant about.
0: Yeah, that's right. There's there's an area where vision would be uh, – the vision is pretty clear. It's uh, something that can be done, but we haven't seen it articulated by – with any sort of enthusiasm or forward-leaning By the government. Now, but we'll come back to climate change. But Warwick, I just wanted to ask you, and this is kind of a clumsy sort of pivot to the eminent economist in the room. But you remember back in uh, the days when we had um, high interest rates and there was a housing boom going on in New South Wales, in particular, to some extent in Victoria. And there's a lot of discussion about, well, we have to have high interest rates to try and, you know, kind of manage this down. And some people started talking about, pity we can't have differential. Uh, monetary policy that you know, so that we could sort of suppress activity in the in the booming eastern states and not punish the rest of the states. Now, the reason I I, I go to this is because I'm thinking, in some ways, the federation did work in this response to this COVID crisis so far, because irrespective of what the Commonwealth wanted to do, the states took it upon themselves. So this the the, the nation became much more functionally compartmentalized in a, in a management sense, and the states queensland in particular victoria um, and w a you know very very stark example decided to simply manage their polities their jurisdictions irrespective of what other people were doing and that compartmentalization has actually served the whole rather well I'm just wondering whether you agree with that well
2: i don't really agree with that because I think one of the big problems we have uh, is is the states themselves have been taking very extreme action without coordination across states. And I think the federal government has abrogated the responsibility here. There should be a lot more standardisation, mm. standardisation of quarantine. What are the rules? What are the conventions? Um, so I think there's a lack of leadership from the top, and that meant the states had no choice. If you look back, I think it shows you why, you know, the states – haven't done such a great job for Australia. I think it would have been better if we had started again if we had local government and federal government and not have the states at all.
0: Well I, I don't disagree with that, but it's sort of you know, that's a kind of an old debate and it's in a way it's a pretty futile one as well because that's not going to happen, is
2: it? It's not going to happen, but you can see a lot of the economic costs that have been done from the policy intervention. And you've got to be clear that a lot of the damage is done by the disease itself and by people changing their behaviour. Mm. The border closings have had an economic cost, but overwhelmingly, it's the human reaction to the pandemic where the costs are. But these communities along New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland, New South Wales borders, those communities have suffered a great, mm. a much larger economic and social cost. And that's because of the dysfunctionality between the states that border each other. Having said that, I mean we have done a great job in Australia. We could have done some things much better. I think the quarantine issue still has to be addressed. We still have to have Australians returning to Australia. Uh, you should have the right to come to Australia if you're Australian. I think the government, federal and state have, have really dropped the ball on that. Well, I couldn't There's agree a more. second issue I mean we have to do business internationally, we at a university we, we need to have foreign students coming through. Um, there are ways of managing that much better than it has been managed.
0: Let's go to the uh, specifically to the uh, Commonwealth's role when the that that tranche came out of assistance, you know, early on last year. Uh, I think it was about seventeen point six billion dollars at one stage. That was at the at the time described by a number of people writing about it, um, TV stories and the like, as an eye watering amount. And it wasn't long before it was completely exempted by m- much much greater. Um, stimulus, protection for the economy. And that has primarily, I suppose, been the Commonwealth's contribution. The states have gone off and pursued, really functionally, they've pursued elimination. That's what WA did. Um, that's what the other states have done. And that's why Australia is largely where it is at the moment. So the aggregate effect of the states doing that, irrespective of what the Commonwealth wanted to do. But going back to the to the stimulus package, what was your feeling at that time? Did you think it was initially enough or or, or did you think that the... Commonwealth was just going to very quickly have to spend a lot more.
2: So I think actually the government very early on took serious notice of some of the modelling work that we were doing. We actually were doing it here and in Washington in um, January where I was, when I was visiting Brookings and, um, the team here and the team there were working very closely. We had numbers which were very eye-watering. Um, I've been at Treasury last week and I heard that a lot of people initially were skeptical that those numbers were way too big. As it turns out, for most countries, we were pretty close to being spot on. Uh, and you needed a very, very big fiscal response. Um, the, the one question is, how big should this, should it be? And the second question is, how do you pay for it? Now, I was arguing in the Prime Minister's dining room with a lot of senior officials very early on in March um, that you shouldn't be paying for it necessarily by taxing people. What you could do is a lot of the support could be income-contingent loans, um, meaning that uh, if you survive the particular shock, then you get to pay it back. If you don't survive, then you don't have to pay it back because what we needed to do early on was to keep incomes flowing in the economy. So JobKeeper was a very good move. JobSeeker was a very good move. The scales were appropriate. The spending packages were wasteful when you look back in some areas, but you didn't have time to be very pre- precise on targeting particular groups. Now we, now we can, and now we still need that support in the system, but we do need to have a much better way to pay for it, and we need a much better way of, of um, targeting those groups that actually need it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've been, pushing this, I've been pushing that line of income contingent loans as well, having spoken with Bruce Chapman from here about it uh, and and seen some of the work that you've done on that. Uh, and i'd asked uh, treasurers and prime ministers about this a few times or the prime minister about this a few times in you know various public places uh and it really hasn't touched the sides i mean it's it just it it always gets dismissed as as i don't know what what is what is the argument against it's too complicated or what
2: No it's a, there, there is a problem if you don't design it correctly for example you businesses are dying all the time mm. so in a system where businesses are dying all the time if you say to them we'll give you money to keep you afloat but they should have died then that money is just going transferred to the owners and so you have this adverse selection problem we call mm. it in economics and that is you you want to make sure that if they take the money that they were, were likely to be uh Not insolvent, but just illiquid. So they would survive any other circumstance, but this was a very unique uh, shock to their. Balance sheet now, the problem is how to stop people from ripping off the system, mm. and you can do that. We know pretty much what sectors in which which parts of the country have been hurt badly. We know universities have been hurt, we know uh, to- travel has been hurt, we know tourism' has been hurt, so you can tailor it to particular characteristics of the businesses you 'd have to put a cap on it, so maybe uh, Bruce Chapman I think argues for about twenty percent of, of income I think that 's about right. Um, so you have to target it, you have, and they have to be paid back, though, if you succeed, and that's the big lesson we learned from the global financial crisis in the US. There were too many firms that were ripping off the system, and there's too many zombie firms left in the economy. Once the economy started to recover, the resources that should have gone to the new industries and the, in the flourishing industries were kept on the old companies, and they, they retarded productivity growth for a decade. So you've got to do it right, but I think you can do much better than just making the taxpayer's support The balance sheets of companies that are paying uh, bonuses to to executives and, and dividends to shareholders. I think you had to have tighter rules if you are going to use taxpayers' money to keep the economy afloat for as long as it has been kept afloat. Let's
0: take a quick break and be back in a moment. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
1: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
0: Welcome back. Now, Helen, just before the break, Warwick was talking about uh, income contingent loans and the problems, some of the complexities associated with that, the problem of uh, you know keeping zombie companies alive. And I suppose that is a problem anyway with the current uh, assistance in JobKeeper. That ends on March 28. We don't know what comes after it, but that's that's a problem. That Some of those problems that uh, Warwick was just talking about that apply to income contingent loans apply at the moment to JobKeeper anyway, don't they? We know there are companies that have been that, – that will fall over, that there are jobs that will cease to exist as a result of uh, that assistance coming off their balance sheet. And we know that there are companies, as Warwick just said, that have been doing very well indeed. And because the rules are written in a very broad sort of emergency framework, they're, they're just, they're, you know, the government's argument is well, those companies are complying with the rules, even if they're paying executive bonuses and share dividends and the like. It's a, it's a big public policy challenge.
1: It is a big public policy challenge, and it, and, and it goes really to what I was saying earlier about the need to be thinking about the future. I mean, I, I do think it's alarming that we don't know what's going to come next after JobKeeper. I mean, we. We do have enough space in the policy system to be thinking about things differently and, uh, to be thinking about what comes next. And, and the fact that there's, there's really not much conversation about that other than the, um, you know, that, that stark debate between, you know, how much we should, we should lower the lowest incomes for people, um, who were previously on, on new start. You know, that's really where the debate has been concentrated rather than how do we think about, A system where uh, we do have to have different rules uh, because we can't keep discounting um, uh, waste, if you like, or inappropriate use of funds. Um, What's unfortunate, I think, is that it does appear that where the government has its eyes on those things, it has its eyes on the individuals. You know, it's back to the old, the people who, you know, are dull bludgers and, you know, people who um, probably have the least, but. But come in for the most attention from the government, as opposed to, um, you know, being responsive to to some of the um, evidence that we've seen about inappropriate use by companies of of, of these funds. So, um, I think there's a risk again there that we go back into that old politics, um, and it's a missed opportunity really if we're not thinking differently about how we would like things to be in the future. And for example, as as I say, aged care is an issue that. Um, we really, really need to get to grips with. We don't appear to have, despite all of the um, inquiries and and, and commissions. Um, There is an opportunity, a really important opportunity to do that now. Um, And That's where I think people should be focusing their attention. And I'm sure that there are many clever policy brains around Australia that are doing just that, but that it's not framing the public discourse. You know, it, it does become quite alarming to me that, you know, what's, what is it that's on Twitter at the moment? Well, it's Tim Wilson talking about, you know, we should get, allow people to take money out of their super so they can buy their first house. I mean, you know, that's the way in which the arguments are being framed. You know, they're both the wrong arguments, but they're also, um, very, uh, you know, as with many of these arguments, you know they're, they're quite seductive because they appeal to the here and now, as opposed to how, what do we what do we need to do now in order to fix the system for the future?
0: It's sort of galling in a way that someone with such generous super is so <laughs> so, so cavalier about other people ending up in retirement with. Uh, with nothing but a bricks and mortar asset and mm-hmm. very little in the way of retirement income. Mm.
1: But it does um, speak to the power of that capacity to communicate mm. and the way of framing an issue. Um, which I think, you know, some politicians, I mean, Craig Kelly is indeed in his own, um, you know, little category, I think. Lunar Absolutely. <laughs> um, and that's a really troubling sign that we do have that, that level of misinformation that's being. Um, sort of
0: inevitable in a way, though, isn't it? I mean, that, that's what we're seeing all around the world is that there are kind of wing nuts and. and
1: but the, the risk is those wing nuts can become president. Um,
0: Well, we have seen that recently, that's true.
1: Um, And that is where I think, you know, it is important to take these things seriously. Um, So not to be, you know, not to either discount or or be distracted by the, the, you know, the apparently seductive solutions to things.
0: But as you said, I mean, our governments are essentially centre-left or centre-right, but, you know, the predominant thing about them is that they sort of have at least one foot in the centre of the electorate and um that's the case all around the the uh the you know the, the states and territories and the commonwealth and there is a relatively high level of public confidence in their legitimacy and um yeah we do need to be vigilant about things spinning out of control and that's why i'm particularly um hostile towards you know the kind of coarse uh vituperative sort of discourse we have on social media mm-hmm. because it seems to me to be like the the wellsprings of a whole lot of other things that, mm. that are antisocial and which can eventually result in both extremism and, and violence mm. and, and all this other stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. Is the government, just sticking with this for a moment, is the government, though, caught between a kind of um, two different competing imperatives? On the one hand, thinking about JobKeeper and job seeker, it would be very nice... To have that level of uh, predictability about what's going to happen afterwards. Will there be sectoral support, for example, for some of the uh, sectors uh, Warwick mentioned before, tourism and uh, universities and uh, hospitality, and you know things that have uh, you know seriously affected by the fact that the borders are shut. Uh, and of course, you know some knowledge about what's going to happen with job seeker, uh, the, the the unemployment benefit. But at the other hand, the government's sort of trying to manage expectations. That's what governments always do. Um, so at some point, they have to sort of strike that balance. They did that a bit through last year with some of this assistance. And then when the assistance came, it was very significant in, in aggregate terms.
1: Well, governments exist to get re-elected. I mean, that's, you know, fundamentally what, what it is about. Um, and that's not a cynical view that, you know, unless you're in power, you can't do anything. So it's important that the actions that you take are ones that are going to, you know, encourage the, encourage the electorate to, to vote for you the next time. And, um, you know, in periods of crisis, it's very hard for any opposition, um, to oppose unless the government is Completely shambolic, as is the case in some countries. Um, but you know, as we move out of of the crisis, hopefully, um, there is the opportunity to to do more than just think about
0: getting back to where we were.
1: Getting back to where we were. So there is a difference, for example, between you know Warwick specifying those areas where we know that there's been you know a catastrophic impact of of COVID. Now you know there is a absolutely a rationality for supporting those. But are those the areas where the government's going to find most of its support? So, you know, the balance is not just between, you know, crisis and post-crisis, it's also between, you know, how do we balance areas of, of need with those people who are we need to vote for us.
2: If I could just add yeah. to I mean, I think people really underestimate the cost of po- policy uncertainty mm. uh, because people change their behaviour in anticipation of what they think policies might be. We see this dramatically in the climate change space. The lack of clarity can lead to very high energy costs because people aren't investing in technologies to generate or use energy. So policy uncertainty in the middle of a pandemic is what you don't want. Mm. And so you need to have at least a, a clear framework it's explaining how you might be evolving your policy over time, but you don't just have a black-and-white policy where you're doing one thing this week and you're doing the opposite next week. You need a very, very clear, transparent sort of a scenario framework. Um, this is one of the problems I have with the national budget. It's predicting the future, and then it has a set of policies that are consistent with that. It's hardly ever is correct they need to have there are maybe four different futures right now and post pandemic we we still don't know what the world will look like in twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three um You need to have a a, a flexibility and a, and a, and people need to believe the government has a plan and therefore they invest in that plan, and the private sector will come in behind that investment and they 'll try and make money out of. Actually doing what is in the interests of the country.
0: And you've written recently, I read a very fascinating piece you wrote for the Finn Review where you talked about the shock of uh, this pandemic uh, globally and on Australia, but you also talked about the other two shocks, which are climate change, as you just mentioned, and climate change policy. You, you even talk about those two things as being sort of distinct. Um, shocks, but known shocks, but then none, nonetheless, they're shocks to the system. Can well, again,
2: again, I mean, if you look at the science, and again, the reason Australia has done so well in this pandemic is they have relied on the science, mm. the the experts. Um, Australia actually had expertise coming from SARS, post-SARS, through the bird flu, swine flu, there were teams in New South Wales in particular that knew how to respond to a pandemic. Victoria didn't have that expertise. So that idea that you need to plan for the future, you need to invest in ideas and knowledge. Um, But when it comes to climate change, the the evidence is that there's potentially very severe shocks coming from climate change itself. We don't know exactly what they will look like, but it seems like we're getting increased frequency of serious storms, bushfires, etc., And then also, we know that countries are going to have to take action, and the way they're going to take action is to reduce reliance on fossil fuels. Australia's income is very largely dependent, not on fossil fuels we use here, but on the fossil fuels we sell to the world. And the modelling we did for the Abbott government on the Paris Agreement targets, which came up with the 26 to 28% reduction, that showed that the global response the impact on Australia was 80% of the cost to Australia of global ac- of any action. And what Australia did internally was actually a very small part of our problem. Big problem was the world was going to shift and we had to move quickly ourselves away from a dependence on the income from fossil fuels. And so I think that's an important lesson. We know policy will change. We know the climate is changing. So we need to be ready with institutions and policies and transformative ideas to get Australia to be able to adapt once... We evolve into the next 20 or 30 years.
0: Now, my sense is, um, that what you just said is, is, uh, well, both expert, but it's also common sense. It, I think most Australian voters would think that rings true, what you just said about the, the potential impacts of these and the, the fact of the, you know, policy changes globally are going to affect Australia as well. In fact, you've said that, um, the G7 uh, plus China's pledge to G7 move to uh, uh, you know, net zero by 2050 and then bringing that forward probably. Uh, and China's already uh, stipulated net zero by 2060 and that may move as well. So th- those sorts of policy shifts will have a bigger impact on Australia than anything the Commonwealth and the States do.
2: That's right, but we could make the cost much larger by not taking correct action. Hmm. Um, And I think that's the risk I see it is that we continue to, to, to have a domestic policy debate, which is divorced from the international debate. Also, it's quite, it's a zero net emission is what people are talking about, which means that you can have sinks in, in, in the image areas that absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Agriculture is a great source of a sink. You hear politicians in Australia saying agriculture should be left out.
0: Yeah, that's the front page of the Australian this very day. Mm.
2: And that that is a very strange thing because agriculture has enormous potential to be a net sink, which means you can have CO2 emissions in other parts of the economy where it's extremely expensive to remove it and offset it with cheap... um, uh, abatement coming through land use change so there, there, there's a lot of misinformation even now after this debate's been going from the early 90s where people do not understand at very senior political levels exactly what the issue is
0: well and perhaps this does go back to validating your point helen about you know sort of i i describe them as wing nuts, but you know sort of people on the fringes of this debate having a disproportionate effect because that's certainly mm. the case in climate change. Mm. People who've been interested in creating doubt, which is really a pretty simple exercise, uh, have have been extraordinarily effective in stopping governments making significant progress, particularly here. I mean, I think Australia's been particularly bad at this. But, you know, vilifying scientists, um, making, them, uh, making them out as political campaigners, uh, questioning the data, um, that, that whole process of sort of bamboozling people with alternative facts, if I could put it like that, um, alternative interpretations of, of things, it has been absolutely material on the paralysis we've seen in the Australian political debate. So where I was going with the, the question to Warwick a minute ago, I, I, I put to you as well it seems to make a lot of sense uh, those statements about how we need to make these adjustments because the world's changing most australians i would imagine would agree with it there's a political disconnect here why does the government not um realize that that's where the
1: votes are i think there's a couple of things going on here um and you know it's one of the it's one of the difficulties isn't it of the the what australians um would consider to be common sense, um, as you know, often the best expert opinion is. Hmm. Um, but then, what they think about when they vote, and you know, the bit in between that is is values and worldviews and, and and
0: competing issues. You com- might you might, yeah. you might agree on. The climate change question, but it might be number four on your list of priorities. Yeah. the things that determine the which things way that it,
1: if the thing that matters to you most is how much income you have at the end of the week, and yeah. that's contingent about you having a job that's connected to mining, then that's going to be ever present. But there, there's or also if it,
0: or if it's cost of living, and a yeah. political party successfully makes climate change an issue about electricity prices, which yeah. is essentially the story of the 2013, 2016 and 2019 elections.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Michael McCormick's statement yesterday about, you know, protecting regional Australia and the, the farmers and, mm. you know, making sure that this was, you know, agriculture was outside the debate. It, 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 it is about confirming the values that people have. And we know from evidence that that's the hardest thing to shift. You know, once you have in your your mind a view about an issue, it's very difficult to to change that. You view everything through that lens. And so, you know, the arguments that we have about, you know, why don't people understand the evidence? Why don't people listen to the evidence? Well, maybe they do, but actually it doesn't align with their worldview. And until you can find a way of shifting that, and it's not impossible, um, but it is it is, you know, that's Australia's... You know, people, I remember being asked once about, you know, if Australia would follow um, the America following the, the election of President Trump in, through the, you know, the misinformation and alternative facts. And I said, actually, Australia was way ahead in the climate change debate. You know, Australia was a, a really great example of how that kind of misinformation can take hold and can shape a debate. And we haven't found a way of shifting it yet.
0: And yet we've seen in COVID, as we've just been discussing before, how... Um, governments working hand in glove with, uh, with academics, with, uh, scientists and, and, and public policy experts, how that can actually achieve very significant things, uh, when people work together. And it's just that. The climate change example has been the polar opposite, mm. really, of our pandemic response.
2: It is uh, interesting, though, because I was heavily involved with the Howard government during the Shergold report uh, and leading up to that election that Howard lost. Right. So this uh, is in two thousand and
0: seven, and the Shergold report was indeed a, a, a proposal for an ETS. And, it was, a, and, an and, and it was based very scale.
2: largely on the work that we'd been doing ten years before that. And, uh, and in fact, you know, back then. The Prime Minister had had gone along with the science, had gone along. He was prepared to put in place serious policies. The problem we had was that there were no marginal seats that he had to worry about Mm. that were going to swing his his political party. Right now we have a situation where several seats in Queensland seem to be dominating the, the party position. There's a lot of very sensible people in the Liberal Party at very senior levels who fully understand climate change, who fully understand something needs to be done, but it's this marginal voter that's mm. stopping them from from actually enacting a serious policy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's befuddling. There, there's a lot of talk that the coalition's on the move in this space. Of course, um, much was made of the fact that Scott Morrison last week said that net zero by 2050 uh, would, or net zero should be achieved as soon as possible and preferably by 2050, which <laughs> was whatever that means. Which is, I mean, this is the kind of soft street you have to deal with in politics all the time. And. Uh, a number of my uh, my former colleagues in in the journalistic world made a lot of this, and I could sort of understand why. Uh, at one level, you know, you're, you're trying to you're trying to read the tea leaves, you're trying to see, particularly because he made this as part of his scripted remarks. This came in the in the speech, you know, so you're um you're looking for those subtle changes in language to see whether that's what's important. But at the same time, it really amounts to. You know, four-fifths of bugger
2: all, really. Well, what you need is policies. You need concrete <laughs> yeah. policies. And you need policies that are bipartisan, that will last for many decades into the future. And this is the problem I have with both sides of politics, is they switch between one position and another position, and their position is whatever the opposite to the alternative government is doing. Mm. And that, that's, that's bad from a climate perspective. You need to have coherent, far-sighted policies that both sides of politics will support, and then any marginal groups are irrelevant. Because once you have the centre-left and the centre-right, then you have a concrete policy.
0: The, the, this, this question is far-sighted though, right? 2050 is a long way away. This is, everything about this is cockamamie, if you ask me. Poli- our politicians are so often guilty of, of short-termism, of, of, of looking just at the near horizon. As you said before, Helen, you know, it's always about getting re-elected. And yet here we have a government tying itself in knots about a benchmark that is the best part of 30 years away when none of these people will be in parliament. Many of them won't even be alive. Um, and yet it's become this incendiary sort of political, uh, you know, bonfire really. Um, so um, I, I, the real question for this, the real challenge is 2030, not 2050, isn't it? I mean, you you can't get to 2050 mm-hmm. unless you take some very serious action by 2030.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, a lot of the – particularly on the energy production side, a lot of the long-term decisions have 30-year horizons. So any decisions that are made today will have implications for 2050. So it's important to get it right now. Well, it's
0: pretty obvious that's where the, the parties will end up, but – Already, we've got three meetings that are happening this year. The one that Biden's bringing uh, bringing leaders together to talk about climate. There's a G7 meeting in July, June, I think, and then there's the um, the climate, the United Nations climate change meeting in November in Glasgow. And it's likely that through that process, they will all agree that 2050 target is too, mm. too uh, not ambitious yeah. enough. Yeah. Isn't that right?
2: Well, that's right. That's right. And, and the, actually the biggest transformation has been the election of President Biden. Yeah. Because while there was always Donald Trump out there and a, and a government that didn't participate in the Paris Agreement, then Australia could always hide behind that. But there's nowhere to hide right now.
0: Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a wicked political problem. I and mean, climate change has always been talked about as a wicked problem. But it's not wicked in the sense that uh, there are policy prescriptions here. There are actions that governments can take. They've just turned it. They've, you know, certain people have decided to take political short-term advantage on the issue, and it's become cultural.
1: Mm. And I, s- I think that's absolutely right. And it's one of the things that when we, you know, when I teach my, my policy students, you know, this phrase "wicked issues" is is thrown around far too,
2: mm. far
1: too easily, and almost everything that is difficult. Um, becomes a wicked problem. Actually, if you look at what constitutes a wicked problem, where we are with climate change, as as, as Warwick's indicated, you know, it's not. It's a, it's a political problem in Australia because of all of the reasons that you've suggested. But there is nothing about the problem in other dimensions that, that, that means it's wicked and, and therefore intractable.
0: Now, we're going to have to uh, wrap up very quickly. But just before we do, uh, can I take you to one other thing, Warwick, because you, you wrote in, in that piece that I mentioned in the Fin Review, you talked about... Uh, reworking the three policy frameworks that, uh, that guide economic policy, monetary policy, fiscal policy and climate policy. I wonder if you could just give us a very quick snapshot of your argument there.
2: So the logic is, um, for, for example, think about the monetary framework we have. Um, it was designed in a period of high inflation and the goal was to target inflation. It was very successful, but now the shocks that we're seeing aren't demand shocks where you're trying to drive inflation down. They're actually supply shocks, and the supply shock is very hard for a central bank to respond to. Yeah, right. And so therefore, uh, if you put in place, for example, a carbon tax, a pure carbon tax, in the short term, you'd expect inflation would rise. So what would a central bank who targets inflation do? They would raise interest rates to offset the inflation effect, which would make the output loss from the carbon tax happening because of restructuring that much worse. So, you need to have monetary monetary policy, fiscal policy and climate policy all moving in the same direction. And the direction should be we want high nominal growth, that is we want nominal incomes to rise at a high rate because firstly there's a lot of inc- a lot of debt in the economy and if what matters is the debt-to-income ratio and if, if the debt-to-income ratio shoots up too fast, then it the, becomes unsustainable. So we want the central bank to be worried about nominal growth, not about inflation.
0: So that – and that's that just for those people who are perhaps not uh, as au fait with these these terms, uh, that charter that the Reserve Bank has at the moment is, as you say, to manage inflation between – in a band of between 2 and 3%. You're saying that's now sort of out of date. That's the kind of wrong thing. And they should, in fact, be uh, trying to um, manage growth or productivity?
2: Well, not nominal growth. So we want nominal incomes to grow at a certain rate. The reason that's important is because, as I said, um, if, if, if your economy, if you've got high inflation and no growth, Uh, in in a world where there's debt, that's actually okay because the inflation itself will be eating away at the value of the debt. But what we've we've needed to do is expand debt enormously around the world because of um, the stimulus that's required for COVID.
0: Are you worried about the level of debt that we have as an economist?
2: Uh, I'm not worried about it because in Australia's case, it's still well below the sustainable levels. It's around 50% of GDP. In other countries, it's becoming incredibly large. Now, I am concerned that that ultimately, historically, has always led to much higher inflation because someone eventually has to pay for it. If you don't raise the taxes or cut the spending, then inflation will eat away at the debt. So down the road, there's clearly an inflation risk. And Larry Summers has made that point about the Biden administration's policies. Mm. But the point is you need to do that now. You need the fiscal stimulus. He's
0: arguing against the $1.9 trillion. He thinks it's too big. It's
2: about 15% of GDP, which is enormous. And in my modelling, that suggests a very, very large stimulus to the US economy. That's what they need. The question is how do you unwind it? But, but you need these three, three tiers of policy. And, and climate policy is a macro policy. It does change the, the growth prospects for the economy. It's an input cost from the energy point of view, but it's also potential uh, driver of productivity. Mm. Particularly if we start moving into hydrogen technologies and all these new technologies where Australia can be at the frontier and is at the frontier. Um, that's important to coordinate those policies so they're not, Looking at a single target each, but they're coordinating across the three main uh, areas, climate policy, monetary policy, and fiscal policy. We have a very complex decade ahead of us as a result of the pandemic and future pandemics because there will be, there will be more um, outbreaks as we go through time.
0: Well, thank you very much, Professors Helen Sullivan and Warren McKeown. It's been a pleasure having you both in the studio for this episode of Democracy Sausage and Thank you for staying with us to the end of what I think you'll agree was a very fascinating and learned discussion and pretty pointy on the economic side too. Thanks, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Mark. Cheers.